Okay, welcome in everybody to today's episode of Mythic Existence. For this episode, I've compiled a list of my favorite Shakespeare plays. This is going to be the first of a two-part series, and plays 10 to 6 will be revealed. So let's take a journey back in time to where the sounds of lutes filled the air, and where subterfuge, murder, and love lurk around every corner, and where the esoteric secrets were ingeniously encoded and put on the stage by one of the history's greatest geniuses. So although I'm a folklorist, I originally studied the history of magic, and this was kind of how I got into Shakespeare in the first place. While I was studying history as an undergrad, I got super into topics like alchemy and Kabbalah, and after I finished my history degree, I noticed that these sort of topics were actually in the Shakespeare plays. You know, the witchcraft in Macbeth, the ghost in Hamlet, I mean, the sprites and the fairies of A Midsummer's Night's Dream. Just on the surface level, you know that there is, you know, magical elements to many of Shakespeare's plays. So, I decided to take a look and see if he, the author actually knew about these topics or if he, he was just inserting them for entertainment, basically. So, without getting into the question of the authorship of the plays, which is something that I'd like to do eventually for an episode, I came to the conclusion after reading, you know, the kind of those plays, Hamlet, Macbeth, Midsummer's Night's Dream, originally, that whoever wrote these plays had a high knowledge of magic in the occult, and the whoever wrote them was a mystic of the highest order. So that's kind of how I got into Shakespeare in the first place. And then after I got my history degree, I went back and actually got an English degree, and Shakespeare was one of my main areas of focus. So what today's episode is, is I've, like I said in the intro, I've compiled a list of my favorite plays. Originally, this was supposed to be 10 through 1, but once I get got into actually listing them out in my notes, getting ready for the episode, I realized that I was going to have to split this into two or else it would be an extremely long episode. There's 39 Shakespeare plays. I went through and counted. I've, I've read 21 of them. And I, I think I've really hit the main ones. Most of the ones I haven't read are the history plays and some of the, I guess, less popular tragedies and comedies. But um, I'm very familiar with the plays. I've read more than half of them. I mean, you know, if you've ever seen the, the collected works of Shakespeare, the complete works, it's a very large volume. So it's thousands of, pl- of pages of plays. But, I mean, I've, I've read all of the big ones. And I absolutely love Shakespeare. I've got a lot of enthusiasm for the Shakespeare plays. I mean, kind of one of the reasons I love them is it just, it, it tr- they really transport you to a different place in a different time. And the language is better than anything I've ever read. And it's not even close. So that's why I love Shakespeare. 
There's going to be spoilers on this episode. I'm going to go through the plot of every episode, talk about what I like about the play, try and you know talk about some of the subtext and maybe what was going on subtextually and also like some of my favorite quotes but i'm going to go over the plots so if you don't know what happens in julius caesar or othello that's kind of on you because you know it's been about 400 years by now so uh you've had enough time to figure out the plots of those plays so without any further ado let's get into the list coming in at number 10 is julius caesar So the plot of the play is that it starts on the Lupercal Fertility Festival, which is uh, a festival for the god Lupercus, which is basically the the Roman pan. And so whenever you you have dates, specific dates in, in Shakespeare plays, you have to question why that date is being thrown in there. So there's two very important dates in this play is Lupercal, which is, um, February 15th and the Ides of March, which is March 15th. And at this point, the Romans are rejoicing and they're, they're happy for Julius Caesar's victory over the former leader Pompey. A soothsayer warns Caesar about the Ides of March, which is March 15th, like I just said. After that, a character named Cassius tries to convince Brutus, and these are both, uh, you, you know, Roman generals, I believe, and Brutus says that Caesar is too self-important and that Brutus would be a, be a better ruler. So that's one of the main things that's going on is Cassius is trying to set up the murder of Caesar and the overthrow of him. Caesar is offered the crown but refuses three times. Very similar to what happens in Richard III uh, when Richard III calculated he you know, comes up with this plot for him to actually become king in which he acts like he doesn't want it, but he actually ends up getting it. It's not really what's going on in Julius Caesar, but it's another, you see these themes that run over the Shakespeare plays. Then during a thunderstorm before Caesar is crowned, there are many Ill, mo- Ill omens as these conspirators meet at Brutus's home to plot the assassination of Caesar. The next day on the Ides of March, Caesar is murdered. And then Mark Antony comes in and he laments the death of Caesar, but he shows respect for the murderers and then asks if he can give a speech. Cassius is kind of hesitant of this, but Brutus ends up giving a speech, trying to, you know, quell the the Romans. And then after that, Mark Antony gives a speech and he, he riles them up with some great rhetoric and convinces the people that Caesar has been unjustly murdered. So there's, you know, an uprising against Cassius and Brutus, and they're basically driven out of town. And then uh, Caesar's son Octavius comes. He and Anthony, Antony start a war against Brutus and the conspirators. Brutus sees the ghost of Caesar, something that's very prevalent in, in Shakespeare. You see that in, uh, you know, Macbeth. Definitely, you see that in Richard III as well. And then the play ends with Cassius and Brutus killing themselves. So that's that's the plot of the play. And what I like about this play is really the use of the rhetoric. I mean, um, in the play, the 
power is not really generated through strength or military prowess, but it's rather from the the rhetoric that's employed. And you see this through, you know, Cassius convincing Brutus to come along to his side. And especially through, I think, the best part of the play in which Mark Antony gives his speech, which is the Friends, Romans, Countrymen speech. And he keeps on, he does this thing where he ends what he said with saying, and Brutus is an honorable man. But every time he's, you know, he's being sarcastic. He's saying, you know, all this stuff. And But Brutus is an honorable man and they're getting riled up all along. So the rhetoric is what I like about the play. But I think the, the sort of uh, esoteric nature of this play has to do with the dying god myth. So... This is, uh, this is both, there's a mytho- mythological aspect and a folkloric aspect to this because ancient societies used to kill their king in a rite of homeopathic magic aimed at restoring the sun. So I think that that's really what is going on with Caesar being murdered is he's this dying god being symbolically killed so that, you know, the sun will come back on March 15th, we're approaching the spring equinox, right? And Cassius kind of refers to this. He says, this man has now become a god. And that's at the beginning of the play when Caesar is becoming, uh, you know, Caesar, really. And there's there's dying god myths from all over the world. I mean, you know, if you take a look at the esoteric nature of, you know, Jesus being killed, that's also what this is about. But we have this in uh, Tammuz and Ishtar, okay, from Sumerian, Adonis. Uh, another aspect of this is um, the Hiram Abiff Masonic killing. So in in like the, I guess it would be the the lore of Masonry, Freemasonry. The uh, the the head Mason Hiram Abiff is killed by. These, these lower masons who want to know the secrets of his craft, but he won't give it to him. And so you, you can find these, you know, Freemasonic themes also in Shakespeare's plays. And I think that uh, this dying god myth and uh, Caesar is essentially Hiram Abith. So that's super, super interesting. Um, you know, you can probably read more about that online if you want to. My favorite quote from, oh, I've got two favorite quotes from this play is, my first one is, a coward dies a thousand times before his death, but the valiant taste of death but once. You know, I think that that's just uh, a really poignant thing, like a really poignant phrase. Uh, It kind of reminds me of back from the episode about the uh, Dionysian entheogens, where it's... um, if you die before you die, you won't die when you die. Uh, it kind of reminds me of that phrase, that quote. And then uh, and my, another one that I like is, uh, men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. So that's Cassius saying that. And that's that's a theme that this kind of quote comes up a lot in Shakespeare's plays. And... It's it comes up in different ways because um, I think it's Edward or Edmund in King Lear. I always get Edward and Edmund confused. 
because you know for obvious reasons if you've read king lear um he he says i forget exactly what the quote is but he says we make guilty of our disasters the sun the moon and the stars so that's kind of a similar thing like he's saying uh we blame astrology essentially for the things that go wrong in our life and that's kind of a theme that comes up again and again in shakespeare's whether or not you know we're responsible for our actions or if the stars are responsible for it so that's number 10 julius caesar coming in at number nine i have othello so the plot of othello is that iago reveals to Berbanzio that his daughter Desdemona has eloped with Othello, who is a Moor and a general in the Venetian army. So Desdemona, that's Brabantio's daughter. Othello, the Moor, has eloped with Desdemona. And Iago is the villain of this entire play. He plagues Othello with suspicions of Desdemona's relationship with Cassio, not to be confused with Cassius from Julius Caesar, who is a lieutenant in the Venetian army. And so Othello is a general, Cassio is a lieutenant, they know each other. And then Iago persuades Rodrigo, who is in love with Desdemona, to fight Cassio. And their fight awakes Othello. And then Desdemona asks Othello to forgive Cassio, which causes him to be suspicious. So because Desdemona is asking Othello to forgive Cassio, he's suspicious that Desdemona and Cassio are having uh, an affair, right? So Iago, he has his wife steal a handkerchief that Othello gave Desdemona, and he plants it in Cassio's bedchamber. Iago then convinces Othello that Desdemona is cheating. He resolves to kill Cassio and Desdemona. Othello does. He's he's incensed and he decides that he's going to kill Cassio and Desdemona. Then Cassio kills Rodrigo uh, during another fight. And after that, uh, Lodovico, who is, uh, I believe, Desdemona's cousin, sees Othello strike Desdemona in public. Othello then awakes Desdemona, asking her to admit that she's having this affair so he can kill her with a clean conscience. At that time, Amelia, Iago's wife, enters and accuses Othello of murder, which he is he's he uh, suffocates Desdemona in the bed. And then uh, others enter to inform Othello of R- Rodrigo's death. Amelia admits for taking the handkerchief, and Iago stabs her to stop from her releasing more secrets upon which Othello stabs Iago and kills himself. And the play is left with Cassio left in control of the Venetian army. So what I like about this play is mainly Iago is just such a good villain. He's incredibly manipulative. I think that he's up there with Shylock and Richard III as the greatest Shakespeare villains. Othello is a great character you really uh, get inside of his head, and I mean, Iago gets inside of his head. But he's, I mean, he's one of the only people of color that has a prominent role in Shakespeare's plays. 
and uh, his his status as you know the racial other is very um, I don't know if poignant is the right word, but it's just it sticks with you. I think um, one of my favorite parts of the speech is or of the play is the speech that Othello gives in Act One, Scene Three. This speech reminds me a lot of a speech that Odysseus gives and also a speech that Dromeo gives in the Comedy of Errors. And basically, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read it off here in a second. But Othello is basically like, oh, no, I'm really not good at talking, but let me try and explain this to you. But Othello is actually one of the most eloquent Shakespeare characters. So he says, rude am I in my speech and little blessed with the soft phrase of peace. For since these arms of mine had seven years pith, till now some nine moons wasted, they have used their dearest action in the tented field. And little of this great world can I speak more than pertains to feats of broil and battle, and therefore little shall I give grace my cause in speaking for myself. Yet, by your gracious patience, I will... I will a round unvarnished tale deliver of my whole course of love. What drugs, what charms, what conjuration, and what mighty magic. For such proceeding I am charged with all. I won his daughter. So he's, he's basically like, I'm not good at speaking, but I, I guess I'll tell you how I, how I actually ended up with Desdemona. I don't want to brag about my military exploits, but check this out. And it's like... I, I just find it kind of funny that he's uh, he's kind of self-effacing, which is another aspect of his character. He's very, um, I think he, I think Othello is really insecure, and but without reason to be right. Like we we see that here. He's he's saying I'm not I'm not good at speaking, but he's actually amazing at speaking. And he's like, uh, you know, Iago. One of the ways that he manipulates him is he he talks about his his racial difference and that's how he actually he 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 uh, zeroes in about on the racism of others actually to go against Othello but that's the thing is that Othello is pretty insecure and that's something that Iago plays into so that's my favorite quote that's Othello i there's parts of this play i'm uncomfortable with the i don't know why but the him him smothering his Desdemona was with a pillow it was just hard for me to you know deal with I don't know why I think it's something I think it's kind of uncanny it's similar to like Edgar Allan Poe's tales of you know burning somebody alive or burying somebody alive just I, I don't know there's something that just is very unsettling with with that method of of death so that's what the, I have Romeo and Juliet. So as far as the plot is concerned, a lot of the plot is actually laid out in the beginning of the play by the chorus. So I'm going to read that off because it's kind of a, a rememberable entrance to the play. The chorus says, Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death bury their parents' strife. 
the fearful passage of their death-marked love, and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children, children's end, not could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage, the which of you patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. So, I mean, most of you are probably pretty familiar with the story of Romeo and Juliet. I'm going to go over the whole plot, but basically it's, you know, these two lovers, they come from families that are feuding in the town of Verona. And in the end, Romeo and Juliet die in tragic ways. And the two feuding families end up, you know, reconciling. So how it all happens is at the beginning of the play, a brawl breaks out in Verona between the Montagues and the Capulets. And this is halted by the Prince of Verona. And to appease Prince Capulet, or to appease old Capulet, I guess, uh, he, well, to appease the prince, sorry, Capulet agrees to marry his daughter, Juliet, to one of the prince's young kinsmen named Paris. And they throw a ball. And at this ball, Romeo and his friends sneak in to get a glimpse of Rosalind. And... I'll just pause to say that this this Rosalind is an interesting name because if you know anything about Rosalind Chapel and Grail Legends, uh, that's a, a peculiar name. And also Elsinore Cap uh, Elsinore Castle is a an anagram of Rosalind, so you could mix up the letters of of Elsinore and get Rosalind. So Romeo falls in love with Juliet. He's no longer in love with, with Rosalind. He falls in love with Juliet. Later, Romeo hears Juliet profess her love under the balcony for Romeo. And they resolve to get married the next night by Friar Lawrence. The next day, Mercutio. And Mercutio is really actually the key to this entire play. I'll get into that. But Mercutio, who is one of Romeo's pals, gets in a fight with Tybalt Capulet. And uh, Tybalt kills Mercutio, and nobody knows that Tybalt is actually, you know, um, an in-law of Romeo now. But Tybalt kills Mercutio, and then Romeo kills Tybalt. The prince banishes Romeo to Montois, I believe that's how you say it. Um, I actually lived next to a place spelled the same way m-a-n-t-u-a in utah and it's pronounced manaway there but i think it's mantua or mantua juliet is then sad and capulet decides to push the wedding up to being immediately then friar lawrence and juliet decide to concoct a sleeping potion that will appear as if juliet is dead and Friar Lawrence is going to send a message for Romeo to have her co- have him come and rescue Juliet from the tomb. But the message doesn't get to Romeo. Juliet is found dead by her family and they go and bury her. So Romeo rushes back and he finds Paris at the tomb. He kills Paris and then he takes the poison and dies because he thinks that, that he takes a poison and dies. He thinks that Juliet is actually dead. She's not. She wakes up, she tries to take the poison by kissing Romeo's lips, doesn't work, she stabs herself, the bodies are found, 
Then Friar Lawrence explains what happens, and both the families reconcile, but it's a terrible tragedy. So that's the story of the play. For those of you who have never read Romeo and Juliet and you think it all ends out well, it does not. It is a tragedy. It's not a comedy. But there's a lot going on under the surface of this play. And I will conjecture that this play is actually about alchemy and astrology. And that's why I was saying that you need to understand the role of Mercutio. In this play, Mercutio is actually the god Mercury, the planet Mercury, and the metal Mercury. And Mercury is very, very important in the alchemical process. So let's just let's table that. We're going to get around to it. Paris is another interesting character. So when you hear about Paris in Shakespeare, you've got to know that Paris is a reference to, uh, you know, Paris from the Iliad. And he's from the Trojan War. He was tasked with judging the most beautiful uh, woman amongst Minerva, Juno, and Venus. And Ovid says that Mercury is the god that took the golden apple to Paris. So... We've got that going on. And then at the beginning of this, uh, in the beginning when the chorus is speaking, it's immediately apparent that something astrological is going on here. So we have these star-crossed lovers from opposing houses. So if you know astrology, you know that houses and opposition is are very important. And quite literally, Julia and Romeo are opposing houses in astrology because Romeo is the sun and Juliet is the moon. And we know that because Romeo, the name is, it means pilgrim, which means to roam. So Romeo is the roaming sun. He is the sun. And we have knowledge that Juliet is the moon in a couple of different ways because she is born on Lamas Eve. We know that from the uh, the nurse, which is uh, a harvest festival on August 1st, which is uh, related to the moon. And she is also the moon in Leo because of that date. And Tybalt is a name for a cat. So Tybalt is, uh, you know... W- going along with this Leo symbolism. And so we've got we've got Romeo the Sun, Mercutio Mercury. And Mercury is the transforming agent in alchemy. So this is a play about transformation from the first matter into the philosopher's stone. Okay? And then we also have Benvolio who is apparently Venus. So we have the Sun, Mercury, Venus. And it's said that when Mercury dies, it has to be, Mercury dies when it gets closest to the sun in alchemy. And that is when the transmutation process can start going. And alchemy is marked by, the end is marked by a death of opposites, a death and reconciliation of opposites. So in the symbolism Mercutio's death is part of the ongoing transmutation process where symbolically 
At some point, the mercury dies as it is transmuted into gold. Then the death of Julia and Romeo are part of the final stage of this transmutation where the opposites symbolically die and they are transmuted into this final stage of alchemy. And uh, we, we also have a reference. We've got a character named Balthazar in this play. And Shakespeare likes to, to take out Balthazar. Balthazar is one of the ancient magi. And so once, once Balthazar comes in, we know that we're, di- we're dealing with this, the science of the magi, which is alchemy and astrology. So, um, and then there's another thing. Uh, you might say, okay, there's, there's one um, quote in the play. Romeo says, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. Oh, so Juliet is the sun. Well, actually, in the Renaissance tradition of magic that was inherited from uh, Marsilio Ficino, it said that the lover becomes the loved. This is what Shakespeare called, uh, well, what later scholars have referred to as syzygy. There's a brilliant book called, um, I forget the exact name, but it's, um, I think it's Shakespeare's syzygy in A Midsummer's Night's Dream, something like that. And that's, there's lots of syzygy in Midsummer's Night's Dream. So um, this play is really about natural magic. And my favorite quote is actually at the end, and this this is going to tie into our discussion earlier about astrology. Romeo says, Oh, here will I set up my everlasting rest and shake the yoke of inauspicious stars from this world-wearied flesh. So, Romeo actually blames the stars for, for his problems in this play. So, that is number eight, Romeo and Juliet. Coming in at number seven, I have The Merchant of Venice. So, the plot of this play is that in Venice... A merchant named Antonio is sad, and he says, In sooth, I do not know why I am sad, but I believe the reason that he is sad is because he's actually a closeted homosexual in love with Bassanio, but he can't admit to it, and he knows that Bassanio is heterosexual and in love with the beautiful heiress Portia. So, Antonio uh, agrees to help his friend Bassanio in this endeavor of raising money so that he can actually woo Portia, who is a beautiful heiress. And then we shift over to Belmont, and Portia is also sad. And she's sad because she must marry the man who chooses the correct casket. So um, that's we, ha- we have several levels of plot in this play. We have, you know, this, this wooing, we have the casket story. And then the third one is uh, simultaneously a character named Shylock, who hesitates to lend Bassanio money, but Bassanio has Antonio as his guarantor. And at this point, Shylock, who is... If Iago's not the best, and if Richard III's not the best villain, it's it's Shylock. I would probably say, I would probably say Shylock is my favorite villain. But he sees a chance to get revenge on Antonio. But he stipulates, he stipulates that if the money does not come through that the bond is to be paid with a pound of flesh, literally a pound of flesh. Then some more uh, suitors come to try and woo Portia. The Prince of Morocco fails. The Prince of Aragon fails. Um, Shylock's servant leaves him and he goes to serve Bassanio. Shylock's daughter is sad 
that the servant is leaving, so she steals Shylock's money and runs to Belmont disguised as a boy. Bassanio goes to try and woo Portia. Portia asks Bassanio to try and delay the choosing so that they can just be together and hang out together. But he ends up actually correcting the uh, uh, choosing the correct casket. So he, uh, you know, wins Portia. And then Shylock comes and he's demanding his pound of flesh. Portia says that she'll pay it 20 times over and they end up going to court. Portia follows disguised as a male named Balthazar. So we've got something mystical going on here. And she uh, acts as a lawyer, this male lawyer named Balthazar. And Balthazar, Portia, says that Shylock should feel bad, but the law is actually on his side. So Shylock is really happy, and she says, however, he can't shed any blood. So Shylock actually accepts the money, and then furthermore, she says that he has to give Antonio half of the money, but Antonio says that he should just give it to Jessica and Lorenzo, this man that she has eloped with um, upon his passing. And then Balthazar all... All he slash she asks for for defending um, Bassanio is the ring that he was going to give Portia. And Bassanio gives it to her. And then she reveals that she was actually Portia the entire time. So um, really the star of this play is Portia. She's the smartest. She's everything is revolving around her. Every Like not in a self-centered way, but she is... Uh, orchestrating everything and is really the the brilliant one and i'll get into why i think that is here in a minute it's something very esoteric and mystical you might have guessed by now um i'll just go my favorite quote is so may the outward shows be least themselves the world is still deceived with ornament that's what bassanio says to portia as he's about to pick the casket and he ends up choosing the lead casket because the out, he says the outward shows be, may be least like themselves. So in in this story, somebody has to distinguish the inner value and be not deceived by the outer value. That's one thing that's going along the casket story, the bond story, and the ring story. Um, but what I think this really play is about is about Kabbalah. So... We can see that this is about Kabbalah at the beginning of the play when Shylock has his first uh, encounter with Antonio, and Shylock is Jewish. And Kabbalah is the mystical tradition of the Torah, and it centers around this thing called the Tree of Life, also known as the Sephirotic Tree or the Tree of the Sephiro. And Sephiro and Kabbalah, there are these centers on the tree that are basically um, aspects of God's knowledge and aspects of God's self. So there's 10 Sephiro. I'm not going to go over what they all are. You can look that up for yourself. But basically, these characters are personifications of the Sephiro. And when Shylock encounters Antonio, he compares his story to the story of Jacob and uh, Laban from the, the Bible. And in Kabbalah, Jacob is the perfect man. So this is uh, a story that is often associated with Kabbalah and the Torah. 
So Shylock in this story, he symbolizes the left hand of the Kabbalistic tree. So there's two sides of the tree. Well, there's three sides, really. There's the side of um, severity, there's the side of mercy, and there's the middle pillar, which is the pillar of balance. And so on the tree, I would posit that, um, and this is actually, there's a, there's a book called Shakespeare, Shylock, and the Kabbalah, which this is where this information comes from, where Shylock is severity on the Kabbalistic tree. And then Antonio is the right hand, which is the, the mercy. So severity, which is called uh, Gevara, and Chesed, which is mercy. That's, that's this opposition between Antonio and Shylock. And then in the middle, we have Portia. And Portia is actually the, the sphere of beauty known, Tifer, known as Tifereth. And Tifereth is where all of the, the lines are... Uh, well, so there's, there's Paths and there's Sephiro on the, the Kabbalistic tree. And Tifereth is where the paths converge the most. And so I would say that um, he is actually, or that Portia is, is beauty on this tree. And I would say that um, Bassanio is right below her uh, on, on the sphere called foundation and in kabbalah this the, the foundation is linked to beauty so they were always going to be linked um so that's i really think that this play is a, a about kabbalah and about restoring balance between mercy and severity which is essentially what um you know the kabbalah is all about so that is number seven the merchant of venice Coming in at number six, our last play for this episode, I've got Henry IV, Part 1. So the basic plot of this play is that King Henry IV's troubles start with the overthrow of Richard II, which happened in Richard II. So Henry IV is now the king, and he's plagued by guilt, which he hopes to expiate with a crusade. Um, and because of this, you know, the, the troubles that he, he's facing... He's kept at home because there's a threat of rebellion. And all the while, these, these uh, you know, rebellious figures are taking up arms against him. And it's um, these Welsh warlords along with Edmund Mortimer and Hotspur, who is uh, one of the main characters in the play, Hotspur. And then while this is going on, Henry IV's son and heir to the throne, Prince Hal, is sidestepping his responsibility and he's wasting his time in the underworld of East Cheap, which is an area of London um, outside of the, the, the castle. So we've got the, these basically three worlds going on. We've got, um, you know, the castle, uh, I, I guess not the castle, the court, it would be. We have East Cheap, which is he's at a tavern, and then we have uh, these warlords, okay? And so, all the while, Prince Hal and a character named Sir John Falstaff hold sway over the tavern full of drunkards, thieves, and prostitutes. And Hal says that he's doing this so that he can shine brighter when he decides to actually take the throne. And Henry IV is upset with his son. He wishes that he would fulfill his duties. 
but um, how is uh, a very, he, he knows what he's doing is what he says. And so how in Falstaff prepare for this atonement that, um, you know, that Hal Henry is awaiting with his father and uh, how staff Falstaff plays King Henry and Hal plays himself and Falstaff defends his own licentiousness. And I'll say Falstaff is my favorite character in Shakespeare. He's, he's this big fat drunkard who is um, he, you know, he takes advantage of people. He makes jokes. He's just, um, he's kind of revelry personified. And at the end of this, um, basically play that they've set up, Hal says that he's going to banish Falstaff one day. So after that, he goes to his father and accepts the responsibility. He goes to the battle of Shrewsbury and at this point, he fights Hotspur and kills him. So he's taken, you know, his call. And then Falstaff thinks he's uh, fakes like he's dead, but he's feigning the death. And it's all for his own gain, basically. He, he takes credit for the kill of Hotspur. Um, and that's basically how it ends. And it ends with um, Hal being sent off to fight more Um rebels and that occurs in king henry the fourth part two which i actually haven't read i still need to get around to that one um and it was hard for me not to actually put henry the fifth on this list that's who hal becomes henry the fifth when he's king and it's it's a great play with a very it's very short but it's got very memorable lines um and i really like that play and it's you can actually i think you can read henry the fifth as either being the, the greatest uh, polemic against war and military or a great defense against it, which is the brilliance of Shakespeare. But like I said, what I like about this play is that Falstaff is just my favorite character ever in Shakespeare. And the scenes in the tavern are the greatest. It's hard to put it into words, but you can really feel England in this play. Like you could, this play just feels like Shakespeare more than anything. And I also love the the dichotomy between the court life and the tavern life. I mean, the the just the language is completely different. You've got this long, dense iambic pentameter in the court. You've got more free verse in the tavern. Um, so it's just a great play. There's it was hard for me to decide what my favorite quote was. So I've got two. First, it's the very opening of the play where King Henry the Fourth he says, So shaken as we are, so wan with care, find we a time for frighted peace to pant, and breathe short-winded accents of new broils to be commenced in strands far remote. So he's saying, you know, we've got a lot of difficult stuff going on, and we're probably going to have more new broils in strands afar, which is we've got, you know, rebels out in out in Wales that are coming up against us. And then the other one is at the end of Hal and Falstaff's little play. Falstaff says, banish plump Jack and banish all the world. And Hal replies by saying, I do, I will. So in that instance, he's, he's both acting as himself, Hal saying, I do banish you and I will banish you when I become king. So 
Um, I haven't worked out the esoteric meanings behind this play. It's a little bit harder in the history plays um, to figure out what is really going on esoterically. But um, yeah, that's 10 through 6. We'll have a 5 through 1 eventually. I've already got you know the, that 5 through 1 figured out. Uh, it might be next week. I'm not really sure yet. We'll see what the response to this episode is like. But thank you for listening to another episode of Mythic Existence. See you next time.